I mentioned last week that in the weeks leading up to Easter, I wanted to spend some time looking at the theme of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I've chosen to look at some of the signs of the resurrection of Jesus that are portrayed for us in the Gospels. Last week, we looked at Jesus connecting his life his death, his resurrection, to the ministry of the prophet Jonah, and how he used a previous person and previous event in the history of Israel to portray some aspects of his own life and ministry. I want to do the same thing this morning with a different passage, a different sign of the resurrection, and this is the sign of the temple that Jesus gives us in John chapter 2. John chapter 2, beginning in verse number 12. The context of this event is right after Jesus turns the water to wine at the wedding feast in Cana in Galilee. And then verse 12 says that after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. And there they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all of them from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, today, we come before your word. We come before the words of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we want to learn today from this image, from this sign that Jesus gave the people of that day when he connected his life, his death, his resurrection to that of the temple where you dwelled in your presence. Father, we thank you for this word, for these words that we have to look at today. And I pray that you'd open our eyes, open our hearts so that we might understand and receive Lord, help us anew to worship and to praise you for our resurrected Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. One of the issues that comes up in this passage in John is whether or not this is the same event that we read about in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where they put it more toward the end of Jesus' ministry. 
in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they describe a similar setting in which Jesus' zeal for the purity of the temple causes him to drive out the animals and the money changers. But John presents it more toward the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And so are we talking about the same event? I lean with most uh, conservative commentators who see this as two separate events. There are some indications, some, some clues, some signs that indicate that this might be a separate event. And I'm not going get to in, get into all those today, but I do believe that this is a separate cleansing of the temple from the one that happens in the final week of Jesus, as described in the other Gospels. And what is interesting about this particular event is the way in, in which Jesus interacts with the religious authorities of his day. And as I was thinking about this passage and and thinking about uh, this other place where Jesus gives a sign of his resurrection, I was noticing how it occurred in a similar context as the one that we saw last week. Because the one that we saw last week with the sign of Jonah also occurred in a context in which Jesus was being challenged as to his identity, his authenticity, whether or not he was the Messiah, And he was challenged for a sign to authenticate his genuineness as to who he was. Here he's being challenged to give a sign to show that he has some heavenly authority to do what he has just done. But in both contexts, there's a challenge to who Jesus is. And in both contexts, there is an unbelieving, a skeptical demand for some some sort of heavenly or miraculous sign to prove who Jesus is. And in both of them, Jesus refuses to comply with their wishes. He refuses to bend to their will and what they want at that moment. Instead, he points them to something future. He points them to something that hasn't happened yet, but will happen. And after it does happen, will become the preeminent sign for who Jesus is as the Messiah, the Son of God. And so here is Jesus going up to Jerusalem, and this was the time of the Jewish Passover. Based on the reading of the Gospels, we can see that Jesus faithfully went to the Passover every year during his public ministry. He went to at least three, perhaps even four Jewish Passovers during his public ministry. This one happens very near the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we read in earlier in chapter 2 that Jesus really had not yet made himself public in terms of his miracle-working power. And But his mother comes to him and asks him to intervene in the setting of a wedding where they had run out of wine. And so Jesus, to, to bless the people there, and, and I think also to show an element of the coming of the kingdom of God, displays his power in that setting. So this is very early in the ministry of Jesus, and he goes to Jerusalem for the Passover. This was a yearly celebration in Israel of the time that God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. And following the Passover would be a week-long celebration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so Jesus is here, as was his custom, during this time of Passover, and no doubt the city was filled with people. Because this was the time in which people would come from all over. They would come to Jerusalem. They would come to the temple because this was where the Passover lamb was to be offered, where its blood was to be sprinkled. 
and where the Passover meal was to be eaten. And so Jerusalem is swollen with people at this time. And Jesus comes into the temple courts, and what he sees greatly disturbs him. It greatly disturbs him because he sees the temple of God, a place that is designed for the worship of God, a place of prayer, a place where God's holy presence would be associated. And Jesus sees it turned into a place of business, a place of commerce. And some have interpreted this passage as if Jesus is against their greed or they're, they're cheating people out of their money. That's not specifically mentioned in the passage. We don't know that they were necessarily cheating people out of their money or they were overcharging people. But we, what we do know from the passage and what is emphasized is that they were making the temple a place of commerce, a place of business, instead of a place of prayer and of worship in the presence of God. And so when Jesus sees this, his righteous zeal, which is compared to the zeal of David, In Psalms, in verse number 17, it says his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That comes from a Davidic psalm in which David is zealous for the house of God against his enemies and the enemies of God. Here it is applied to Jesus, and we don't know if the disciples remembered it at that moment or maybe remembered it later on after the death and resurrection of Jesus. But they associate this zeal of Jesus with the zeal of the earlier David and his zeal for the house of God. But Jesus' righteousness, his desire for the purity of the house of God, causes him at this time to demonstrate, to display his authority. And that's the first point of the message this morning is we see the authority of Jesus displayed. The authority of Jesus is displayed. Because he comes into the temple with a whip of cords that he has fashioned, probably out of leather cords. He's made this whip and he comes in to drive out the sheep and the cattle from the temple courts. It's not said that he uses this on people. This is to move the animals, to send them running out of the temple. Why were the animals there in the first place? Well, most commentators believe, and probably rightly so, that the reason these animals were here is you had people coming from all over Galilee and Judea, and maybe even from farther out than that, coming to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. And for the Passover celebration, you needed a lamb. You needed a Passover lamb to be sacrificed and its blood sprinkled. And then that Passover lamb was to be eaten as a family. Well, instead of bringing an animal with them all that way, that distance, however far they were coming, for many it became more convenient to just purchase an animal that was there, an animal that had perhaps already been set aside for purposes of sacrifice and worship, an animal that was pure and without blemish, without spot. Now, this used to happen outside of the temple courts, some distance away from the temple on the, on the way up to Jerusalem. But what they had done, perhaps for quote-unquote convenience sake, is they had moved it closer and closer to the point now where it's in the outer courts of the temple. Many people believe it was in the outer court of the Gentiles, 
of the temple where these these animals were available for purchase. And so in a in a desire to help people and and make things more convenient, more easy for people, according to Jesus, they ended up polluting the worship of God. I think there's a lesson in there for us in the modern day church. And that is that the worship of God should not be dumbed down to what is convenient or what is easy. But the worship of God should be what God declares it should be. God decides how he should be worshipped. And we shouldn't dumb it down or make it convenient just for us. We live in a day in which the church is very, Christians are very much consumer oriented, especially in America. They treat the church just like they treat anything else. They go on, you know, if you're shopping for a product, you go to different stores and you compare prices and you compare reviews of different brands of products and you go on Amazon or wherever and you shop for the cheapest price and you get what is best in your mind for you. It's a consumer mindset. We apply that same mindset today often in the church. Where do people go to church? Well, I want to find a church that suits me. And so I want to find my type of music. I want to find my specific demographic. I want to find a church that's really close to me. I want to, whatever. They, they view it in a consumer mindset of, of what best fits my wants and desires and needs, or their, at least their perceived needs. But the church of Jesus Christ, the worship of God, is, is not to be uh, handled like a consumer. It is to be done to the honor and the glory of God. And first and foremost, what we should be looking for in a church is a church where God is honored through the preaching of his word and he is glorified. Not where we are pleased, but where God is pleased, first and foremost. And so they had tried to make things convenient. And also people would be coming from outside of Jerusalem and they might be coming from the farther reaches of the Roman Empire where they might have uh, different denominations of money different currencies. And, and in order to come at this time and pay the temple tax, which was due at this time of the Passover, they had to pay it using a specific denomination of coin. And, and that specific denomination of coin may not have been available where they were, so they come and they exchange money. They exchange money for a coin that they could use to pay the temple tax. And so basically, these people have turned the temple of God into an animal market and into a bank of exchange. And Jesus says, this is not what the house of God should be. This is a house of worship. This is a house of prayer. And in his zeal and in demonstration of his own authority as the Messiah, he cleanses the temple by driving them out. And so his authority is displayed. And then his authority is questioned. In verse 18, the Jews responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Who makes you who you are? What gives you the right to just come in here and, and do this and, and throw over the, it was chaos, right? I mean, you can imagine the chaos, animals going everywhere, being sent out of the temple courts, throwing over tables and coins rolling everywhere and clanging on the ground. Who, who do you think you are to come in here and to do this? And on one level, it was fine. It was right for the Jewish authorities to, to seek to make sure that who, whatever teacher or rabbi was seeking, was displaying this kind of authority, that it was a legitimate authority. 
Certainly that's within their right. But it's a skeptical question. It's a question that arises out of doubt. It's much like the question that we saw last week with the Pharisees. Give us a sign. Show us something. And it's what they're saying here in verse 18. We want a sign. And, and by a sign, they mean a miracle. We want a miracle. We want some heavenly, miraculous work to show us that you're from God, that you're a genuine prophet of God, you're a genuine teacher of God, and you have some kind of authority commissioned by God to do this. So prove it. Show us something. They're questioning Jesus' authority. But Jesus doesn't capitulate to their wants. He doesn't give them exactly what they want. He's not going to, he's not going to domesticate God down to their level. He's not going to make God, the God of Israel, the God of heaven and earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's not going to make him like the other pagan gods of the day in which they would try to manipulate the gods and get the gods to do their bidding by making some sacrifice or praying some incantation. God is not at their beck and call. God is not there just as a genie to give them their three wishes. He is the God of the universe, and he is not going to bow down to the skeptical, doubting demands of a self-righteous people. And so, like last week when he says, just the sign of Jonah, he gives them another somewhat enigmatic sign that they don't understand. And so, he gives them a prediction. So, the authenticity of Jesus' authority is predicted. They want some authenticity of his authority, but they want it now. Jesus, instead of giving it to them now, he predicts it. He gives them a sign that will be coming down the road. So the authenticity of Jesus' authority is predicted. And so he gives them a typological sign. He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Can you imagine just hearing that as, as a Jew in that day, as a Pharisee, as a religious leader, what was the centerpiece of Jewish life and worship? It was the temple, wasn't it? The temple was the centerpiece of Jewish life and worship. And Jesus says, tear down this temple and I'll build it again in three days. There are two incredibly audacious things there that Jesus said. One is the audacity to say anything at all about the temple being destroyed. As you can imagine, that is a very sensitive issue for the Jewish people, right? I mean, what happened in their past? They went into exile when the Babylons sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And they went into exile for 70 years. It's been rebuilt when Nehemiah and Ezra and the Judeans came back to Jerusalem. It's been rebuilt. But then you have the, the Greeks under Antiochus Epiphanes and his oppression of the Jewish people in the Holy Land and the desecrations that he committed in the temple precincts and perhaps even some destruction that took place in the temple precincts. And here they reference the fact that this temple has been under a construction project for 46 years under Herod. 
Herod was involved in, in expanding and in beautifying, renovating the temple. And that had been going on for 46 years and was, was to go on for another several more decades. And so to, to even mention the destruction of the temple is an audacious claim. In fact, this was used against Jesus in his arrest and crucif- in his trial. They look for witnesses to testify against Jesus, and about the only thing they could find is a couple of witnesses who couldn't even agree with each other, but said something about this, about Jesus claiming that he was going to destroy the temple and raise it again in three days. But notice, Jesus doesn't say here, I'm going to destroy the temple. That's what they falsely claimed he said at his arrest and his trial. That's not what he said. He didn't say, I'm going to destroy the temple. He just said, destroy the temple. I'll raise it up in three days. So he mentioned something audacious about the destruction of the temple, which, ironically enough, this beautification, this expansion, this building project that was going on was not finished until 63 AD. Seven years before it was destroyed again by the Romans. In AD 70. He says, I'll raise it in three days. They said, that's, that's impossible. What do you mean? That's an, another audacious claim, isn't it? Let, it? let alone saying that this, talking about the temple being destroyed, how in the world could you say that you could raise it up, build it up again in three days? It's been going on for 46 years. It's a ridiculous claim. Of course, they didn't understand the the level that Jesus was talking on. They thought he was talking about a physical level, right? But he was speaking on a spiritual level. He was speaking on a typological level. He was making an association between the temple of God and his own life, his own body. What's the association there? I think it's actually a very strong connection, a very strong association in Scripture. What was the temple for? The, the temple I mentioned a moment ago, the temple was the central life and worship of Israel, wasn't it? Everything that, that Israel did was focused on, in the early days, on the tabernacle, and then in the later days on the, the more permanent temple. That was the place where God was worshipped. That's, that's where you went to pray. That's where you went to seek God. That's where you went to offer a sacrifice. It was the centerpiece of Israelite worship. Isn't Jesus now the centerpiece of our worship and life as Christians? He is, he is our focus. He is our center. Also, I think there's a connection in the sense that the tabernacle or the temple was that's where the, the presence of God was manifested, isn't it? We read about in, the, in Exodus when the tabernacle was finished that God's glory, his, his light, his Shekinah glory, if you will, came down and, and made its home in the tabernacle. As we've been going through Exodus on Sunday nights, we've seen that, that some of the symbolism of, of the tabernacle is this is a house. This is where God lives. This is his dwelling place. And it's in the midst of his people. And so it's in that idea it's in that setting that jesus says or john writes in john 1 14 the word became flesh and dwelt among us 
literally tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. Jesus is the new tabernacle, isn't he? Why? Because he is the presence of God. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. John 1.18, no one's ever seen God, but the only begotten of the Father, he has revealed him. He has made him known. Jesus is the new tabernacle. He is the new temple. He is the presence of God in the midst of his people, even if they didn't recognize it at the time. He's there. Also in the temple is where the priest would offer sacrificial blood for atonement so that God might dwell with his people. When we think of the temple, we think of all that the temple signified and all that took place in the temple. And whether it be in the tabernacle of old or in the temple, that was the place in the Holy of Holies, the most holy place where on the day of atonement, the high priest would enter with the blood of the sacrificial bull, the the offering, and would sprinkle that blood on the altar in the presence of God, atoning for the sins of the people. But Jesus is the new temple, isn't he? He's the new priest. He's the new high priest. He's the new sacrifice. He's the new temple. You could say that virtually everything that the tabernacle or the temple signified is filled up, fulfilled in Jesus. He's the temple. He's the presence of God. He's the priest making the offering, the sacrifice. He's the sacrificial lamb shedding his blood for the atonement of God's people. He is the new temple. He is the presence of God. And Jesus, I think, is saying here, in essence, that he is now the fulfillment. And in fulfilling it, he is the replacement, if you will, for this structure, for this building. That's why he says to the woman in Samaria, in John chapter 4, there's coming a day in which you will neither worship the Father on this mountain or that mountain. What was he saying? There was a dispute between the Samaritans and the Jews over where the holy place was, the place of worship. For the Samaritans, it was on Mount Gerizim. For the Jews, it was on Mount, Mount of Zion in Jerusalem. And so there was a debate between Jews and Samaritans. The, the holy place for the Jews was on that mountain, on Mount Zion, where the temple was. But Jesus says to the woman at the well, there's coming a day, which I, I think he means by that, his life, his death, his resurrection, in which you'll worship God not on this mountain or that mountain, but you'll worship him in spirit and in truth. Why? Because when Jesus comes, he comes as the presence of God. And then when he dies and rises again and then goes to eternal, uh, goes to the, the right hand of the Father, whom does he send but the presence of God in the spirit of God to indwell us? And so Jesus is the new tabernacle. He's the new temple. He's the fulfillment of it, the replacement of it, if you will. And that's why I think the destruction of the physical temple in AD 70 was a part of the plan of God in in bringing in the new covenant era. And that not only was Jesus replacing the significance of the temple and that now his presence is here, but also this temple would no longer be before very long. And Jesus is the presence of God. And the spirit that he sends is his presence. And so Jesus says, on the third day, I will raise it again. 
He meant His body, didn't He? He meant His resurrection. And so the, the authority of Jesus is displayed in zeal in the temple. The authority of Jesus is questioned by the skeptical Jews. The authenticity of Jesus' authority is predicted by means of this sign, the symbolism between him and the temple. And finally, the authority of Jesus is confirmed. The authority of Jesus is confirmed. And if you look in this passage in verse 22, notice what it says. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, John's going to talk about the resurrection, and he's going to describe it in detail later on in his gospel. But he, he brings it forward as a hint here, doesn't he? He brings it forward so that we can understand what's going on here, and so that we can see that this authenticating sign that would demonstrate the authority of Jesus was confirmed. It was fulfilled. When was it fulfilled? It was fulfilled when he rose again from the dead. And his disciples remembered it. His disciples remembered these words. They remembered this association that Jesus made between his life and the temple and his resurrection and the presence of God. And they believed in Jesus. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest sign that he is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest sign that he is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And so when Jesus puts off the Pharisees, like we saw last week, and gives them the sign of Jonah, or when he puts off the Jews here and he says, I'm only giving you the sign of the temple. Tear it down in three days, I'll, rise, I'll raise it again. When he puts them off, yes, he is not capitulating to their immediate desire for a sign at that moment, but he is giving them a sign. He is giving them a sign. In fact, he's giving them the preeminent sign. He's giving them the most powerful display of the work of God that they could ever imagine. That Jesus would have life in himself and would have the power to lay it down and the power to take it up again, as he says in John. That is the greatest sign that he could possibly give them. He puts it off for a little while, but then when it comes, it fulfills, it confirms his authority. So that we can read in Matthew 28, 18, after the resurrection of Jesus, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now go, make disciples. Or we read about in Acts chapter 2, verse 32 to 36, in the sermon of Peter, when he says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, from Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Then Peter says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. 
other words, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his exaltation to the right hand of God is the greatest sign of his authority that, that you could imagine. It is the confirmation, it is the proof, it is the demonstration that he is the authoritative son of God and all of his enemies are being made a footstool for his feet. You want a sign of my authority? There's a sign of my authority. But you can't have it today, but it'll be available to you. Will you believe? His disciples remembered the words and they believed. Do you believe today? Do you believe in the resurrected Christ? That Jesus of Nazareth walked the roads of Galilee, that he was handed over and betrayed to the, uh, the authorities, that he was arrested, tried, mocked, beaten, hung on a cross, died, took upon him the wrath of God for our sins, was buried, and then rose again by the power of God on the third day. Do you believe that? And do you believe that Jesus did that for you? I pray that you do. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, our mighty God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the authority that you invested in him as your son, in the incarnate son of God. We thank you that when he came, he came as the light of the world. He came as the life of all mankind. He came as the new tabernacle, the new temple, God with us, God among us. We thank you that through his life, his death, his resurrection, that our sins are atoned. And that through faith in his name, we have eternal life, the life that he earned for us on the cross and in rising from the grave. Lord, may we, like the disciples of old, may we remember these words. May we remember what Jesus said. May we remember the empty tomb. And may we believe as the disciples of Jesus believed. And then, Lord, may you use us as you use them to go into the world and make disciples in obedience to the authority of Christ. Lord, open our eyes to see, to believe. If there's someone here that you have not yet called by grace, Lord, call them today and open their eyes and may they see the resurrected Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.